And tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump weighing in after President Biden is facing no charges in his classified documents investigation. The former president claiming that he cooperated with the feds, which he didn't. Also alleging that Biden did not, which he did. The White House is blasting the report as politically motivated and certainly a political headache. Meanwhile, a potential Trump running mate tells me that she would not have done what Mike Pence did on January 6th. You know, abiding by that thing called the Constitution. The apparent new Republican litmus test for the second in line to the presidency. Also tonight, Israel's prime minister wants its military to have plans to evacuate Rafah, where over a million Palestinians are sheltering, as the White House is warning that military action there would be a, quote, disaster. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. When the history books are written about the 2024 presidential election, there will be a lot to say about just the last 24 hours alone. Americans now love to wonder if the current president is competent and if the former president, his likely opponent, is a criminal. With that as the backdrop here, Donald Trump is wasting no time jumping all over President Biden after he was not charged over his handling of classified documents that were found in his Delaware home. The White House, meanwhile, is training its fire at the special counsel who cleared Biden of those charges, but also branded him as an old man who has frequent trouble with his memory. The comments that were made by that prosecutor, gratuitous, inaccurate and inappropriate, clearly politically motivated. When the inevitable conclusion is that the facts and the evidence don't support any charges, you're left to wonder why this report spends time making gratuitous and inappropriate criticisms of the president. Politically, of course, and what the White House knows, this is a matter that could be an albatross around the president's next neck for the next nine months. Donald Trump certainly isn't going to let it go. Neither are his Republican allies. Listen to what he said tonight at an NRA event in Pennsylvania, playing both fast and loose with the facts. Zero charges against Crooked Joe, despite the fact that he willfully retained, willfully retained and disclosed throws of ultra-classified national security documents. I cooperated with the very unfriendly and hostile feds. Biden fought them all the way. I didn't. I even gave the DOJ and the FBI lunch at Mar-a-Lago. You know, they say I didn't behave. I gave him lunch. If he's not going to be charged, that's up to them. But then I should not be charged. There's a lot to unpack there, but perhaps I will start tonight with a quote from the special counsel, Robert Hur, in his report, noting the distinction between the Trump and the Biden documents cases that he says quite the opposite of what you just heard there. He writes, quote, after being given multiple chances to return classified documents and avoid prosecution, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. He not only refused to return the documents for many months, but he also obstructed justice. In contrast, Mr. Biden turned in classified documents to the National Archives and the Department of Justice, consented to the search of multiple locations, sat for a voluntary interview, and in other ways cooperated with that investigation. I'm joined tonight by Democratic Congressman from New York, Dan Goldman, who was a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and the lead counsel for House managers in the first Trump impeachment, not the second. Uh, Congressman, thanks for, for being here. Uh, but you know, you saw the distinction that we just laid out in the two cases. 
But on President Biden's itself, does he bear responsibility for, for having these classified documents and for sharing this material, disclosing it as well? Well, look, I think he has acknowledged that uh, he does bear responsibility for it. He's taken responsibility for it. He immediately turned it over. He fully cooperated. It was clear that he never intended to keep those documents, which he acknowledges were packed in boxes by his staff. Um, so the, the juxtaposition between the two cases could not be any greater. And, you know, it makes me wonder watching that clip from tonight of Donald Trump, um, where he just outright lies about what happened in his case and what's in the special counsel case. And it's remarkable to me that everybody is making such a big deal out of this throwaway comment about President Biden's memory when Donald Trump makes a habit of outright lying day after day after day. Why are we not talking about this pathological liar instead of focusing on what was an uh, editorializing by a prosecutor that has no merit to the case at hand? I think we definitely talk about both, certainly uh, on this show. And I want to talk about the memory stuff in a moment. But, but on the case itself here, the investigation, you worked at SDNY. So did Ellie Honig, your former colleague. He said last night to me that he thought it was actually a close call on whether or not to charge Biden. Is that how you read the report? Not at all. I, I think there's a, a significant distinction, and, and I, I love Ellie, but there's a significant distinction that you have to draw between documents that uh, have classified markings on them and President Biden's notes taken from classified documents that he would uh, either use for a memo, he gets the presidential daily briefing, he can take them back and forth to his home. There are different rules for the vice president than there are for someone like me who gets access to classified information, but yeah. only in a skiff. And so on their face, those notes would not have markings and it would not necessarily be obvious that they contain classified information. And so there's no evidence here that he was intentionally holding on or had any intent to disclose this information, you know, beyond uh, the, the immediate realm that he held. Um, and that is a significant distinction. But, but there were some documents that, that had, they were marked classified. He noted that when he was speaking to the ghostwriter. And it does say that some of them were related to, to human sources, which is obviously some of the most sensitive intelligence. And I know that you care about that because you talked about it when Trump was, you know, reported uh, on talking about a document. You talked about the, the concern of it putting the women and men of the intelligence community in danger. Absolutely. And that is a very significant concern. Again, what were those human sources? What's that classified information in the notes that he took in that memo in 2009, eight years before he left the office? No one is defending the fact that he took classified information. And frankly, we've had conversations on the Oversight Committee about strengthening the law around presidential, vice presidential access to classified information, because we now have President Trump, who had who took uh, documents, Mike Pence, President Biden. The critical difference between Trump and Pence and Biden is that Trump went to such great lengths to conceal the documents. That Even from his own attorney. And, and obstructed justice, why would you do that unless you had some sort of 
intent to do something wrong with them. Yeah, and you, so that's that's why these cases really break apart and why this wasn't a close call for Biden and why Donald Trump was charged. You mentioned the the memory references. You you said it was a singular incident in here. I mean, I understand a lot of mostly the entire White House thinks it was gratuitous. They've been very critical. But there were numerous instances in it. And it also, it's not really a one-off because there were moments, and we've covered Donald Trump's moments as well when he calls, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Nikki Haley, and exchanges them. But Biden this week, you know, twice has referenced dead European leaders when he was talking about ones who are very much still alive. And I wonder, does that give fuel to the fire that voters are already concerned about his age? Well, look, I, I think one of the things that you do have to recognize about President Biden's age is the flip side of this coin is that he has a tremendous amount of wisdom and experience. And he dealt with Mitterrand. Uh, and so he had many, many interactions with the former French prime minister, and he mistook the current French prime minister for the former one. Same thing with, with Germany. Um, but the reality is, and I experienced this firsthand when he called me on October 7th and I was in Israel the day before this interview with the special counsel, his understanding and mastery of a complicated geopolitical situation in the hours after the original attack, and as he described to me the different messages that he was sending to the different players, was remarkable and demonstrated his experience and his wisdom, which we've seen in how he's dealt with Ukraine and how he's managed to uh, keep this conflict in the Middle East focused on Gaza. So, you know, may, does he have a, a memory lapse occasionally? Uh, it's quite possible. I think a lot of people do. Mike Johnson mistook Israel and Iran uh, last Sunday on, a, on Meet the Press. But is it, is it also true that in five hours of his interview, he recounted very specific conversations from many, Should many years ago. Should the White House ago. release the transcript of that, or DOJ release the transcript of that interview just so everyone can read for themselves how that conversation I went? I think it would be helpful. I do. I, I think that at this point, uh, it's something that uh, we would all like to see because from my conversations with the White House, um, there were some very detailed recollections that he had that were not included in the special counsel report. So why are you just picking and choosing uh, these these uh, ex specific examples um, when there are many other examples that would demonstrate the opposite. And as somebody who judged credibility of witnesses all the time, uh, I would not overemphasize the fact that you might have been off uh, as you were describing a particular event and trying to recall whether it was 2009, 2013. Um, I don't view that as such a big deal. And I'd be shocked if uh, he truly did not remember the date. You think the transcript would show otherwise? I, I don't know, but I, I, the transcript may be accurate. But what you have to understand is the context means everything. And so it might, uh, who knows what was going on before, what they were talking about before, where his mind was. Was he, were they talking about something that he had to readjust to 20 years later? All of those things have an impact. And I've debriefed many, many witnesses. And sometimes it takes some time, especially when you're the vice president and year after year after year, your schedule is effectively the same. The years will blend together. Congressman Dan Goldman, great to have you here uh, on set, especially. Thank you for joining you. us tonight. A shiver may have gone down every Democrat's spine yesterday when this report was released, and that's because for some, certainly those who worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign, it had echoes of 2016. Of course, in that election, one topic dominated the campaigns of both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. 
a growing firestorm over her emails. And her private emails. 3,000 more pages of email from Hillary Clinton's personal account. Her private email server scandal. She deleted the emails. The American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Then, on June 5th, then-FBI Director James Comey walked in front of the cameras and said this. Good morning. There is evidence that they were extremely careless in their handling of very sensitive, highly classified information. And this. There is evidence of potential violations of the statutes regarding the handling of classified information. In the months that followed, eight out of the nine straight Gallup polls found that the one word Americans heard the most about Hillary Clinton then was email. Yet in the resulting media coverage, there was very little mention of this part. No reasonable prosecutor would bring such a case. Fast forward to where we are now, as polls do show that 76% of Americans already say President Biden's age is a problem. It's a reality that Republicans are often happy to bring up. He's too old. Joe Biden is too old. And everyone's saying he's too old. That's where Special Counsel, Special Counsel Harr and his report comes into the picture. With this report to Congress that describes the president, and I'm quoting the Special Counsel now, as an elderly man with a poor memory, and that Mr. Biden's memory also appeared to have significant limitations the po political reality remains that even the very first line of the report, which states, we conclude that no criminal charges are warranted in this matter, does risk being overlooked. Proof of how many, the reminder of Comey, gave, gave some Democrats heart palpitations. Listen to the words of a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton telling The New York Times, the first text I got this morning was, were you thoroughly triggered last night? It's a moment in time that my next guest knows just as well as about anybody. Here tonight is the former deputy director of the FBI who had a front seat, front row seat in 2016, Andrew McCabe. Thank you so much for being here. I mean, did you have Comey flashbacks as you were reading through hers report yesterday? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, it's, there's, there's some nauseating similarities to, uh, uh, to that situation from July 5th, uh, 2016, and to what we saw in the report yesterday. Can you just, you know, though, talk through the differences here? Because there is a difference in the sense of what Jim Comey was obligated to to do and what Robert Hur here was obligated to do in the sense that he's a special counsel. He had to issue a report here. He did not have an option. Maybe he didn't have to put the mentions of, of Biden's memory in there, but he did actually have to issue a, a report here. Sure. So that, that's exactly right. So the, the regulations that uh, govern the conduct and the appointment of special counsels require that at the end of the investigation, the special counsel must submit a report to the attorney general, and it's got to explain what he found and why he is either pursuing or declining uh, charges. And to be clear, Rob Herr's uh, report checks those boxes It in, in great detail, lays out what he found and um and of course, why he's not pursuing charges. The difference with the situation with Jim Comey, uh, Jim was not a special counsel. He was not under any sort of obligation, uh, certainly not under an obligation to make a public statement about what we thought of the investigation we had conducted into the emails. Jim felt that it was important and necessary for the public to understand, for us to be transparent 
about what we found and what we thought about the case because the case had been so public since its inception. The public knew about the investigation before we ever even got it from the from the uh, uh, inspector general of the intelligence community. So um, there was so much anticipation that Jim felt that there was no one in a better position than us. We had done the investigation. We should go out and tell the public what our conclusion was. And I think that was, you know, those those are questionable decisions. I think where we stepped far over the line and made a mistake was in Jim's rhetoric, clearly criticizing Hillary Clinton, but of course not recommending that she be charged. The use of those terms was very likely a violation of DOJ policy that says you don't say bad things about someone who you're not going to charge. So you think what Comey did as that day, you think he was wrong? I do. I do. And that's not an easy thing for me mm-hmm. to conclude because I was a very close, worked very closely with Jim. I was on that team. I reviewed his remarks before he made them. Um, but in retrospect, I think I should have worked harder uh, to convince him not to use those terms and possibly not to make the statement at all. Nevertheless, uh, uh, it, it is what it is. Uh, Jim made the decision to go forward in the way he did. Um, and I think that the effect of that statement, I mean, who's to say how great of an effect it had on the on the election? There's no question it was not positive for, uh, for Secretary Clinton. Uh, and then, of course, the entire thing was accelerated in, in, with the decision in November to announce that we had reopened the case, which is a totally uh, separate matter, but, but had massive consequences, I'm afraid. When you read in this special counsel's report, those comments, not just the one, there were multiple about Biden's memory. Did it stand out to you as going against or, or around what the protocol would be? For a report like this? Yeah, Caitlin, it really does. I mean, it, it really felt like it was another instance of a very high profile investigator um, who was coming out with a conclusion that he likely knew would not be accepted or embraced by many people and kind of attempting to kind of even out the scales. In other words, to, to play to the sort of uh, to the to the sort of the the segment of the audience that was going to be frustrated by the fact that he concluded not to pursue charges. That's what it felt like to me. That's my opinion. I have a lot of concerns with some of the things, the way that he talked about the evidence in the report, the way that the kind of the headline from the report isn't supported when you get down into the meat of the analysis of things like the sufficiency of the evidence. Mm-hmm. It's question. It, I, I have all kinds of questions. Why you know in several places he says. Uh, that that President Biden willfully retained uh, national defense information and then goes on to say after page 200 that uh, the evidence to there is insufficient evidence to support that uh, that conclusion. And that's why he wasn't pursuing charges. So it's there's a lot of inconsistencies in the report that I think are ultimately damaging uh, to the to the subject. Yeah, he said at one point that that if you were trying to really keep documents, you wouldn't necessarily put them in a box in your garage next to, to all kinds of uh, trash or things you're throwing out. Andrew McCabe, obviously you're the perfect voice on this. Thank you so much for joining tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. Up next, we're going to talk about Trump's iron grip on the GOP as Republicans are rushing to outdo one another on embracing his election lies, including some new reporting here on CNN Tonight about the person who could become the new chair of the Republican National Committee, 
Also tonight, we are getting a warning from the White House about Israel when it, it seems to be planning a military operation in Rafa, where over a million civilians are sheltering right now. What the prime minister there has asked his military to do. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, there is new audio that was uncovered by CNN's K-File team showing how the man that Donald Trump is hoping will be the next leader of the Republican National Committee has repeated the very same election lies that Trump himself has told many times. Regardless of how uh, these lawsuits come out um, around the country uh, with the presidential race, uh, we do know that there was massive fraud that took place. We know that it took place in places like uh, Milwaukee and Detroit and Philadelphia. Nope. No, it didn't. There is none of that. But that was the voice of Michael Watley, who I should note is the current chair of the North Carolina Republican Party. He could soon be at the helm of the RNC, as our reporting last week, that Ron and Romney McDaniel is expected to step down from that role after the South Carolina primary. The former president's 2020 election denialism also appears to have become a new litmus test in his choice as potential choice for vice president. Take, for example, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik and Senator J.D. Vance, two people that our sources say are under consideration to BVP potentially. Had you been vice president on January 6, 2021, what would you have done? I stood up for the Constitution. I believe no, it was what an would you have done if you were vice president? I would day. not have done what Mike Pence did. I don't think that was the right approach. If I had been vice president, I would have told the states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and so many others that we needed to have multiple slates of electors, and I think the U.S. Congress should have fought over it from there. That is the legitimate way to deal with an election that a lot of folks, including me, think had a lot of problems in 2020. I think that's what we should have done. It was a legitimate election. There were no problems. Everyone has said that. But underneath those answers, it is a clear political calculation that those two lawmakers are making. I should note the vice president only has a ceremonial role when it comes to counting the electoral votes, something that we noted to the congresswoman. Come this election, when Vice President Harris is in that position, would you be okay if she rejected the votes if Donald Trump wins? L listen, we need to make sure the election is constitutional and legal. We're talking about Democrats... Legal. Joining me tonight, former special assistant to President George W. Bush, Scott Jennings, and the National Coalition's director for the Biden-Harris 2020 campaign, Ashley Allison. Scott, you are a lifelong Republican. As I noted, you worked for Bush. You also have been a senior advisor to, to Mitch McConnell. Is this the new litmus test to be the Republican vice president? Well, it's certainly a performative moment for people because obviously Donald Trump didn't end on very good terms with his last vice president over this very issue. So I'm not surprised to hear them saying that. I mean, the reality is, what else can you do? I mean, the idea that you would require all the states to send multiple slates of electors, well, why, why should we even vote? Why don't, why don't we just do that at the outset and save ourselves a lot of time and let the Congress fight it out? Now, it should be noted, the Congress has since changed the law and they passed the Electoral Count Reform Act. People, I think, have forgotten. But this has all been clarified that the vice president 
has no role in rejecting or doing anything to this other than the ceremonial duties of presiding. So fortunately, in the future, there should not be any question about what this person can or can't do. But yes, it's performative. They feel like they have to say it. They're checking the box. Uh, Ashley, I just can't get out of my head, you know, hearing Congresswoman Stefanik so ardently defend the idea of, of not doing what Pence did, which was just his, his job there, though. The idea of these Republicans and how hair on fire they would be if Vice President Harris tried to take that tactic. Yeah, I've really been thinking over the last three years why individuals continue to push the big lie that Donald Trump um, did not lose the election and that this election was false. And the three things I can come up with is one, that they um, actually believe it. And so they are pushing something that is untrue. Two, they don't believe it, but they are willing to cheat to win an election. Or three, particularly what Watley is saying, who is the North Carolina Republican Party chair and potentially the next National Republican Republican Party chair, that he speaks of urban sitters that have voters of color or people of color who showed up in record number to elect someone who was not Donald Trump. And so there is an effort potentially to disenfranchise those voters. Regardless of any of the three reasons why they would be saying it, it's problematic and it's anti-democratic. And it's why it's so troubling that Donald Trump continues to be the front leader. But I'm not just going to give these folks a pass. Um, and I appreciate Scott saying it's performative and saying it's performative. These folks are leaders. Well, they're supposed to be leaders. And so I expect more than performance. I actually suspect, expect some substance and for them to do the right thing. And for Stefanik in that interview the other night, when you continue to ask her and she just flat out said she wouldn't have done it, should never be held holding office. She shouldn't even be in the Congress right now. She actually thinks that that is what should have happened on January 6th, or that's what she would do if she was vice president. That is extremely troubling, and voters should be paying attention to that. Scott, do you think it's disqualifying? Well, it won't be disqualifying to the person who makes the decision, and that's Donald Trump. I mean, ultimately, uh, look, I, as I said, I, and I said many times on, on and after January the 6th, I think what happened that day was shameful. There's no world in which the vice president of the United States should be able to unilaterally change the outcome of an election. That's ridiculous. And I think the uh, the reforms that have been put in place have made that clear moving forward. But do you think Donald Trump is going to pick somebody who, th- who he hears on television say, oh, I totally disagree with Donald? Of course not. I mean, so, so the performative aspect here is what matters. Uh, and, uh, and, and they're, and they're doing that, doing what they think they have to do to be in the, in the mix here. Yeah, clearly an audition. Scott Jennings, Ashley Allison, thank you both for joining on a Friday night. Up next here on The Source, Prime Minister Netanyahu today asking the Israeli military to plan for the evacuation of Rafah. Why the implications of that would be so big? We'll talk about them with former Defense Secretary Mark Esper in a moment and whether that is even possible. Tonight, Israel is planning what it says would be a new offensive into the southern Gaza city of Rafah. It's the corner of the enclave that Israeli forces have told Palestinian civilians to go for several months now. The Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, says that the military is drawing up plans to evacuate those, faci- those civilians. But right now, Israel has offered no clear answers on where they would go or how that would even be facilitated. What we do know is we have these satellite images over Rafah that really speak for themselves. It's a city that once housed roughly 280,000 people. It is now a center for the displaced, with more than a million people crammed in there, all living in makeshift tents. 
Joining me tonight is the former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who served in the Trump administration and is here on The Source, I should note, for the first time as a new CNN Global Affairs analyst. It's great to have you, Secretary Esper. We rely on you so much, so, so it's great to have you officially on the team. On this, this decision and this plan by Netanyahu, I mean, it is 1.3 million people roughly that are sheltering in Rafah right now. If you're the IDF, how unrealistic is it that this order that you just got from the prime minister? Yeah, well, thanks, Caitlin. First of all, it's nice to be with you tonight. Um, look, you're talking about moving 1.3 million people and uh, a clear timeline isn't given. Would this be days, weeks? I mean, you have to figure where do you where do you move them to? Because Egypt has said they do not want them there. And of course, Rafah is right up against the Israeli-Egyptian border. It's a sealed border. And so I don't know where you push them to. Do you push them back up north? But you have to provide for food and sanitation and and, and some type of housing along the way. So it, it seems unrealistic. But I, I understand on one hand what they're trying to do. They want to move people out so they can isolate the buildup area and move in and, and, and go after Hamas. I mean, Netanyahu has stated there's up to four uh, Hamas battalions positioned there holding out. And I assume there's probably more below ground as well. So they're in this uh, they're in this fix right now. How do you do that while still limiting civilian casualties, which they continue to be criticized about, and uh, and the numbers continue to rise at the same time? Yeah, and the White House has said what a what a disaster it would be if this if they do try to carry this out. And, and you know, President Biden last night was asked during that that press conference that was mainly focused on the special counsel's report, but he did make a really important comment about Israel's war and how it's being conducted. This is what he told reporters. The conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, has been um, over the top. It may not sound incredibly blunt, but it's probably the sharpest criticism that we've heard from Biden on how Israel has done this. I wonder if you think it makes a difference to Prime Minister Netanyahu. It doesn't appear to make a difference, but it should. Now, look, first of all, the president's words were imprecise. What does that mean over the top? I, I think we would all agree there's too many civilian casualties, right? But is he calling that, uh, is he saying they're breaking international law? Is he saying they're being indiscriminate? It's, it's unclear. I, look, I think there are things we should do to try and assist the Israelis, right? Are there U.S. military planners over there uh, helping them, looking over their shoulders as they plan strikes, operations, to make sure that it is consistent with the laws of war? or that limits collateral damage, something that we take special care for. Uh, maybe there are other things they could try. Maybe they should suspend airstrikes for a while and make this really a ground-based uh, attack and focus. Uh, so I, I think we need some more clarity there. Uh, on the other hand, look, I think part of the problem is that Netanyahu is not clear about what he intends to accomplish here. He keeps talking about defeating Hamas, which is not gonna be possible. It's an ideology. You're never gonna kill every last fighter. So I think he, if he would define more of what he wants to do, for example, take out their senior leadership and destroy their means of uh, attacking Israel, which would mean getting into the tunnels, then that gives you a little, more, a little bit more specificity and seems like more realistic uh, uh, objectives to achieve. So, look, there's a lot of imprecision here. I think the Israelis continue to need to work to do better, but clearly they have the right to self-defense. I mean, we can't forget about what happened October, what, on October 7th and what Hamas has continued to pledge to do time and time again. Yeah, it's a balancing act. Secretary Esper, great to have you here tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. Up next here on The Source, there are new concerns when it comes to the Trump classified documents case, one that he said he'd been cooperating with earlier, which he did not. 
This is coming from special counsel Jack Smith, though, and right now he is worried about threats to witnesses in that case. We'll tell you his biggest concern right after a quick break. Tonight, the special counsel Jack Smith is fighting to protect the identity of witnesses in Donald Trump's classified documents case. We learned this from a new court filing where Smith details the gravity of keeping their identities secret from the former president and his allies, saying, quote, witnesses, agents, and judicial officers in this very case have been harassed and intimidated, and the further outing of additional witnesses will pose a similarly intolerable risk of turning their lives upside down. Here with me tonight, CNN's legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Jennifer Rogers. Can we just talk about what Jack Smith is trying to do here? Because he's been having this battle since mid-January, but, but he's making very clear his concern tonight. Yeah, now he's trying to get Judge Cannon to change her mind because she already ruled that these documents disclose the identities of all of these prospective witnesses uh, that were turned over in discovery to the defense, as they must be. The defense then attaches them to motions in front of the judge, and then she says, oh, well, they've attached them to motions. Now these uh, documents have to be disclosed. So he's asking for a motion for reconsideration now and saying, you know, obviously what you said, the, the harm to these witnesses is manifest, they've been threatened, et cetera, but also she used the wrong legal standards. So they're saying, listen, you have to reconsider this. This is the correct legal standard. We don't have to show what you said we have to show. And look at the harm here. In this very case, people have already been threatened. Their lives are being turned upside down. Well, one person apparently has been th so threatened that it prompted a, a separate federal investigation into that. Yeah, I mean, we've seen what's happened in countless other cases, right? All of the other criminal cases, civil matters, anytime the former president kind of targets someone and starts talking about them and how they've wronged him, these people have their lives harmed. And so it's not just about the notion of physical harm to people and, and problems with their lives. It's also about the integrity of the case. I mean, when witnesses see that when they're being threatened, when they see other people being threatened, it makes them much less likely to want to stand up and go do their duty and testify. So it really can harm the case here. What could these threats look like in the sense of, I'm just thinking in other instances where, where witnesses have said, you know, I had an attorney who was being paid for by Donald Trump or his allies. I was influenced by that attorney then to only reveal certain information. And then, you know, in the case of this one, when the superseding indictment was added, there was a new co-defendant because... He, he essentially didn't tell the full truth and then got a different attorney. Yeah, so there's all sorts of things that could be happening. But one thing that's really unique to this situation is this notion of not uh, contacting people yourself or having other people contact them, but instead just speaking publicly about people and saying, oh, these people should really do the right thing. You know, they shouldn't be lying about me. They should be saying such and such and knowing that that will then impact those witnesses indirectly. Jennifer Rogers will be watching closely to see what, of course, the judge here decides. Thank you for breaking it all down for us. Up next, we are going to Vegas, baby, where Sin City is swiftly getting set for the Super Bowl. See what I did there? We'll tailor our next conversation with a former NFL star. We are now just days away from Super Bowl 58 this Sunday in Las Vegas. The reigning champs, the Kansas City Chiefs, are taking on the San Francisco 49ers. For the 49ers, it's a revenge game of sorts following their loss to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl four years ago. And of course, a win for Kansas City would really cement them as the NFL's new dynasty. That would be three championships in just five years. Here to talk about this is former NFL star himself and wide receiver Dante Stallworth, who I should note 
has also played in a Super Bowl, so has perfect experience to, hear, to join us here tonight. I mean, I just wonder what you're going to be watching for uh, the most in this game. One of the things, Caitlin, that I'm going to be watching for is really how the Chiefs handle the pressure from the 49ers. Can the 49ers get pressure on Patrick Mahomes? Because if you're if he's allowed to sit back there and you know go through all his reads and make the plays that he does with his legs and extending plays, it's going to be a long, long day for the 49ers. But I think the 49ers on their end, they're going to have to make sure that they stick to the run, run the ball, and get the play-action passes going to get Brock Purdy a little more confidence uh, going into the Super Bowl because it's a big game for him. It's a big game for everyone, but especially him being so young and all this uh, all this attention that's been put on him. But it'll be interesting. It's, it's always going to be a great game, the Super Bowl, and I'm excited for this one for sure. Yeah, and on Patrick Mahomes, I mean, you know, he's just been in these conversations now with with your one of your former teammates and someone who won a Super Bowl seven times, Tom Brady. You know, if he does end up getting his third ring on Sunday, I mean, he's only 28 years old, I should remind everyone. Where does that put him in contention when it comes to to the discussions about the greatest quarterbacks that we've ever seen in the NFL? You definitely have to put him in there. He is the he will be the youngest player uh, at the age of 28 to start four games at quarterback. And with him winning uh, uh, two Super Bowls already, you know, he's he's in there with the likes of, uh, you know, guys that have that have already been in the Hall of Fame. So I think his his legacy is at, at, at a very young age. He's already cemented himself as a Hall of Famer. But when you're talking about some of the greats or the greatest, of, um, he's already mentioned the fact that he wants to catch Tom Brady seven Super Bowls. He's 28 years old. The Chiefs are playing really well. They've got, you know, a good mix of talent, young talent and uh, an old veteran leadership on that team. Yeah. They have a chance to win a lot more, but, um, you know, he's definitely already in that conversation and and he deserves all the praise that he gets. All right, so this game's happening in Vegas. I'm coming tomorrow after the show's over tonight. And the last time I was in Las Vegas was last March. That was when I came to see Taylor Swift play in her concert as she was kicking off her Eras tour. Obviously, people are hoping, expecting that she's going to be there on Sunday as well. Uh, are you a Swifty? Um, you know what? I, I appreciate her music. Um, I haven't like bought any albums, but she's got some pretty cool songs. Uh, I, I must admit, um, she is um, she she is obviously beloved by a lot of people. A long time ago at the Country Music Awards, very down to earth, very humble person, and I personally like I, I've been enjoying. Uh, you know, all this talk about her being at the games and everything. I think it's pretty cool. She's bringing a new uh, audience to the game of the NFL. Uh, and, you know, the NFL game is growing, it seems like, every single year. And she's brought a big audience with her mm -hmm. star power uh, to the NFL. A lot of young girls have, have been watching the games. And and I remember I seeing this video, this Instagram video of this mother asking her three or four-year-old daughter, asking her who's her favorite player on the Chiefs, and she says Taylor Swift. So I thought that was pretty cool. I know a lot of people are annoyed about it, but, you know, get a life. It's fine. She's all right. Get a life. I love that. All right, Dante Stallworth, can't wait to see what happens on Sunday. Thanks for joining us here tonight. Also coming up here on CNN, a private plane crashed into a busy Florida interstate not far from the airport. Major questions about what went wrong. We'll give you the latest right after a quick break. 
Look at this new video out of Naples, Florida tonight. A private plane actually crashed on Interstate 75 there, quickly engulfed in flames, as you can see here. It was really just a few miles from the airport when this plane went down. It hit a vehicle on the highway. What we are hearing from officials tonight is that two people who were on board were killed. Three others survived. No update on their conditions just yet. But in air traffic control audio from just before the crash, the pilot said that they had lost both engines. The pilot's last recorded words on that audio were cleared to land. We are not going to make the runway. I should note the FAA and the NTSB are now investigating this. We'll keep you updated. Before you go, of course, as we just mentioned, talking about the Super Bowl, Super Bowl champion Michael Orr's name, you might remember him from the hit movie The Blind Side. There's a whole lot more to his story, though, and there's a new CNN flash doc, Blindsided, that takes a closer look at it. Controversy surrounding the hit movie The Blind Side. Michael Orr, blindsided, he says, by his family at the center of the Hollywood blockbuster. Alleging they earned millions from pushing a false narrative that they adopted him. The movie depicted a totally different person. Michael really didn't like the movie from the very beginning. It followed him everywhere while he was in the NFL. There's no escaping it. He felt like someone was making money from this movie and it wasn't him. They said that they never intended to adopt Michael. I think that, you know, as they kind of say in the South, he got some splaining to do. It seemed to be all love and a lot was offered. He was portrayed as unable without the help of the Tui family to have made his way in the world. The movie's great. It allows us to go around and talk about the Michael Lords of the world that need a forever family. I know what a conservatory ship is now, thanks to uh, Britney Spears, to hear that, you know, something like that had gone on. It struck some nerves. They blindsided him from the start. Blindsided, tomorrow at 8 on CNN. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now.